From the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring Josh Webb, Jake LaTondras, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. Right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me this Thursday. Hey, Ramsey, looking outside the window. It's October 31st. It's sleet hitting the windshield. We don't have sleet right now, Rocky, but it sure cooled off last night, and I'm proud for it, son. I'm going to tell you what, yesterday was sultry and... Uh, boy, coming back from Utah last week with such gosh, such beautiful weather. To come back here, that old deep south funk. With that oh man, I am fired up about some cold weather coming through the front door right now. Love, yeah. it. you know, and forty three years old. I was thinking back on it. I, I I can remember a couple of really really cold Halloweens, but I don't think that I've ever seen frozen precipitation. Before November first, <laughs> no, I, I cannot recall that. Not in Mississippi. I saw some up in Utah, but I cannot recall that right now. I can I cannot recall that in Mississippi. But I, I just stepped outside, uh, and boy, does it feel nippy out here right now. I love it. Golly, this feels like. Can't you just imagine if if this doesn't get a duck hunter fired up? Uh, I, I don't know what does. It, never mind it's October 31st. I, man, I have heard reports uh, where where I hunted last week in Utah. It's got ice on it, inch of ice yesterday. And that's going to warm back up, but right now there's an inch of ice. Canada's frozen. Birds are leaving. Birds are flying. I, I hear a report from Oklahoma, Kansas. Boom, 40,000 birds show up on a refuge. I hear some reports from Missouri. Boom, they got they got a sky full of birds. Whew. It's your rocky. It's that time of year, and I'm fired up. Take me back. I want real quick before we get to your interview with Terry Dimon. I want, I want to ask you something. Take me back to Ramsey Russell as a kid. Halloween today. We're recording. It is. It is the morning of Halloween. Best candy that you can remember getting as a kid, and worst candy you remember getting oh, as a kid. I, I hated. I hated. Uh... I don't even know what they were. It was them. It was them uh, orange and black and funny looking, like bolt brocks, something bolt brock bin candy that the, the old folks handed out. I hated it. Hated it, man. <laughs> you know, it's it just like I don't even know what flavor it was. It was just taffyish something. I, I couldn't stand. And. Uh, what did you hope? But for? I, what did you hope for? What did Ramsey Russell get? Uh, I like I like sweet tarts. I love the sweet tarts, milk duds, uh, M and M's, that kind of stuff. All that kind of stuff. Them little old pixie sticks they'd hand out. Man, I like that kind oh, of stuff. Man. As a child. Oh man, that was good. And now, now you taste it. It just makes your mouth draw up. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I did. I, I don't eat that kind of stuff anymore. But I did. It's 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 a, it's a wonder I got any teeth left. Much much. Uh, I mean, look, man. I when I was like, remember when I was a kid in Greenville, uh, catching all them turtles, making that big twenty bucks a week, catching those little snapping turtles and hustling green turtles at school for for four bits. Um, I blew it all on on candy and video games. The rest I just wasted, you know. <laughs> you know. But anyway, uh, man, it, it, I, I would say I was a candy trader after Halloween Day. Man, ooh, I could I could make some deals on some candy now. Yeah, and I, I wasn't a, uh every once in a blue moon, you'd go to a neighbor's house. And I don't know if they handed them out to everybody or just the children they recognized, but they, they'd hand out like those uh, caramel apples 
Ooh, I didn't man. like the candy. Yeah. I didn't like the candy. I didn't like the candy apples. I liked the the, the apples that had been dipped in caramel. That I, I still I like that. I would eat that right now. Um, I agree. With I, you I, on that. I still like a caramel apple. Love that kind of stuff. But but now them old them old Brock Bolt. You know what I'm talking about. Just uh, now I couldn't stand. I just I mm, I hated it. Yeah. I, I I agree with you, man. Uh, some of the worst ones were candy corn. Um, I remember the the marshmallow orange looking peanut thing. Mm-mm, no, mm, I hated that. Uh, no, that's exactly uh, what I was thinking when you said that. Yeah, anything that I would find in my in my mama's candy bowl in the month oh. of November, <laughs> December, I didn't I didn't want to get it <laughs> trick or treat. Oh, my so, grandmother had a candy bowl with them hard candies, and you know they kind of they kind of solidified like like 50 candies would get like one of them striped candies uh you know different <laughs> yeah, colors with yeah. different stripes and, and then they you kind of have to bang the ta- bang the pan on the table to get them to break free <laughs> yeah, i'd eat them anyway but that. i hated them i hated them and uh they've probably been sitting there for three years it didn't matter they tasted the same you know but um i had to be, de- uh, I had to be desperate to eat something like that though man that brings back memories Gosh, I remember those. My, my my grandfather had the same thing. But anyway, hey, look, what did you and Terry talk about in, when you sat down with him? Man, look, I, I'm going to tell y'all, for Mojo Decoys, uh, bonafide statistical fact, it is the number one most recognizable name in decoys. It's also the most controversial. I mean, I, I've heard them, I've heard them, uh, Blame from everything, but the Kennedy assassination to to the, the collapse of duck populations worldwide, and uh, you know all the all the stuff going on with that decoy. But at the end of the day, Rocky, it's also the most used decoy. I, I have hundred six continents, and everybody uses them. Everybody uses mojos. I tell you, I tell you this funny story. I was in Azerbaijan one time. And the staff there, uh, the, the guides, the boy that took you out, were extremely they were poor people, and uh, one of the first mornings I was hunting, uh, I I had brought some mojos over. They had some mojos, and uh, but I was sitting out there with a couple of king mallards uh, in the hole, and uh, very very polite little Azerbaijani guy. I loved him to death. His name was Adil. And uh, and and he kept trying to communicate something with me, you know. And we could talk a little bit. Hungry? Go? Yes? No? On, on on Google Translate, but it, but it wasn't it wasn't um, you couldn't have a conversation. And so when it came down to him trying to communicate, he kept pointing to that decoy and saying something I didn't understand. I, I, we you know I, I, we, I didn't know what he was saying. So we were push pulling back, and uh, and he tapped me on the shoulder and he kind of rubbed his thumbs and his fingers together like you know the, the universal sign for money. I go, oh heck, here we are. God's gonna shake me down. This dirty little son of a gun is trying to get money out of me. Now I understand why I didn't understand. He wants money. I say no. Universal sign for no. Uh. Uh-uh. He keeps doing something, and he reaches in his pocket and he breaks out some money, some Azerbaijani money. And uh, I don't remember what the conversion rate was, but I realized it was about three U.S. dollars. And um, I, so I called my translator on the phone, and they talked. And uh, the, the boy deal was just real kind of embarrassed that I'd put the translator on the phone with him. I'm in the middle of a lake for the first morning in a foreign country with a guy, you know, making a universal sign for money. I needed to talk to somebody, right? There's a misunderstanding if, 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 if things ain't going right. And he, put, he handed the phone back to me, and my translator said, Ramsey, He's asking to buy your mojo. Wow. He badly wants your. He badly wants that mojo. He says, "How much money did he offer you?" I said, "About three bucks." He said, "That's not enough, but but Ramsey, just know that's every penny he's got to his name." Wow. I mean, I, you know, it's every penny that boy had to his name. He wanted that mojo. And guess what? I gave it to him for free. You know what I'm saying? I mean, 
every penny he had, he wanted that mojo so badly. Not in a million years could he ever afford to go buy one at retail. I mean, I gave it to him when I left. And, and I gave him a tip also because he was a very, very good guide. And I really enjoyed hunting with him. But, and, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate uh, years ago to meet Terry Demon, uh, maybe over a decade ago, um, through my, my our mutual friend Mike Morgan, whom I've known since I was 19 years old. And Terry and I began to hunt together. As I was a guest on their show. And, you know, as you sit in a duck blind with somebody, you, you really get to know them. As you travel with people, you really get to know them. And uh, I, I I respect Terry as a dear friend, number one. Uh, I'd, I'd say one of my very best friends on earth. Uh, but I also respect him as, as, uh, as the person and the businessman and 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 uh, his idea and where he's taking this company and where it's gone and I had heard the story of how he fell into this. Now he's an engineer by training, and we talk about that. How did how did you become Mister Mojo? It's a very interesting story. How he fell into it. Somebody had basically called and asked him a favor, like how, how do uh, back when they were <clears throat> being run by pulley wheels, two pulleys and a and a, and a band. Somebody needed a little formula to figure out, you know, uh, the conversion from big wheel to little wheel and how to get this kind of RPM so the wing flash at this rate. And Terry, being, being the, the inquisitive guy, he's like, what are you talking about? What is this for? He told him to answer real quick because he can do that kind of stuff. And he's a smart man. Now, let me tell you this, too, about my buddy Terry. One day we were in uh, Argentina going duck hunting, and he, and he, he read the temperature on the dashboard in, in, in centigrade, and he goes, well, I wonder what that is in Fahrenheit, and I said, uh, let's say it was 10 degrees, I said, well, that's 52 degrees. He says, well, how do you know that? I said, well, because, you know, you multiply two times two times Celsius and add 32, and you come up with it. I said, and it really ain't two, it's 1.8, but I, I just round up to two because I can't do 1.8 all the time. He said, no, 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 that, that, I don't believe there's a formula like that. I said, no, Terry, that, that, I learned that in school. That's what it is. 1.8 times centigrade plus 32 is how you convert it. He got quiet for about 90 seconds, maybe 120 seconds. And he snapped his finger and goes, my gosh, you're exactly right, because the boiling point is this, the freezing point is that, and blah, 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 and you cross-multiply and do this. That's, he said, it's, it's actually 1.8 something. Dude, he man that can, that can figure that out in 90 seconds off the top of his head, that's a genius in my book. <laughs> I can't matriculate like that. I'm a Jethro Bodine matriculator. Um, I'm gonna tell y'all. Not, 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 scoop up little mud piles out in that shallow water. And then early in the morning as the ducks were coming in, they would mistake those little mud humps out in the water as ducks. And then as the boys started shooting ducks, they'd actually wait out and put ducks on top of them little mud humps so they looked like ducks. The whole purpose of a decoy is, is, is to allure ducks within range. And I defy anybody to tell me a decoy that does it better than a than a spinning wing decoy. I, I, I show me. I prove me wrong. They work, and, and you know uh, they, they 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 you know for good for better for worse for public land all things equal. Uh, a kid that doesn't have twenty years calling experience and and know how. He's got a little advantage. He can go out and be successful. And you've got to be successful. Young people have to be successful or they're, they're going to lose interest. That's what really allures me to it as a product. It works. It does good. I think it's a very interesting story. Mr. Demon's a very interesting man. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll say this. Uh, he's a very good hunter. I, I I would I would if I held up three fingers I'd say he is he is on one of, he's one of them fingers worth of duck hunters I've ever met in my life he's he's not a you know a lot of people I hunt with when ducks start coming in and, and hitting the decoys and you know time to shoot uh, 
they react emotionally. Mr. Demlin is an engineer. And one of the hardest, uh, he wanted, the first time we ever hung together, because I kind of think on one side of my brain, he thinks on that analytical side of brain. It just, it just took a little, uh, a little visiting. Yeah, we, we were, we were fine after a day or two, but he thinks differently. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's that non-emotional, that rational side of the brain that comes with that heavy level of engineering and matriculation that I ain't. And, uh, but we became good friends because of duck hunting. And I'll say this, you know, uh, I was always impressed how I, I would describe him as like the, a Frank Sinatra era mafia hitman of Stone Cold Duck Hunters. That's how I think of Terry Dimmon. He never got emotional. When those freaking ducks were coming in, whether it was one rosy bill or 50, he never reacted emotionally. He just, he just, he just flew into, he, you know, he, he was shooting ducks, Rocky, before I was trick or treating there in Greenville, Mississippi. He'd been killing ducks since way back when, way back before Mojo. That man was killing ducks, and 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 when those ducks would come in, I, I just, I just, I just remember observing one time. He was a non-emotional shooter. He 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 just went through the motions, and ducks started falling. Um, he's a very good duck hunter, you know, in terms of putting out decoys. He's always said, you know, if 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 um if it ain't working, change it. Don't be scared to get out in the decoys and change it. You know, read the ducks. And if it ain't working, change it. You know, and so anyway, I I think uh, I really think it's a it's a this interview is a very good a very good uh glimpse into the history of Mojo, which to me is fascinating. Just imagine imagine back in the uh late nineties, Rocky he talks about this. Imagine that being such a coveted product that they were literally selling them in brown paper sacks, almost like a drug deal going down at eight o'clock at night. Because because if you let it be known the light of day, you could you couldn't keep up with demand. It's it's, it's hilarious. Everybody wanted that thing, and it's crazy. Uh, it was crazy, it was real crazy and, at the time. And they've continued to innovate. They've continued to build build products and decoys, and 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 it's all about it's all about you know making it more efficient for people to shoot ducks. I've killed a lot of ducks without a mojo, but part of my my bag of tricks is mojo. Several of their products, and uh, but this this isn't really about uh, the 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 you're fixing to listen to is not really about. It's not about uh, it's not a it's not a sales pitch for Mojo. It, it's a very interesting story about Terry Demon as a person, Terry Demon as, as a as a as a Mojo business guy, and about the history of Mojo that I I just find utterly fascinating. I I, I I've heard him say it many times, and I, and I always love to hear him talk about this story. Well, we need to get to that now because we could keep talking about history for a long time but anyway randy enjoyed our conversation but we need to get that interview with terry now this is ramsey russell getducks.com where's duck season somewhere and today i'm on the outskirts of monroe louisiana headquarters of the most recognized name in the decoy world with mr terry Demon. how are you terry I'm doing great today, Ramsey. How about you? It rained over here. It turned cool. Yeah. If, if you'd come a day ago, it'd have been 99. It'd have been dry. No, it feels like fall out there today. It makes me want to go hunting. Makes me want to go hunting too. But Terry, you know, uh, Mojo Outdoors is the most recognized name in decoys. There's folks that love them, folks that hate them. I bet everybody listening's hunted over one, whether they do it on a regular basis or not. But Tell us, tell us about Mojo. I've I've heard the story before. We've hunted together a long time, but how did this all come about? Well, it actually came about probably about as much by happenstance as anything else. But it was uh, 1999, and um, there was a family of people that I grew up with named the Crow C R O W E, and uh, they were big farmers, and we happened to own a farm together down in uh, Catahoula Parish. Catahoula Parish been a pretty famous duck hunting place because of Catahoula Lake and all the, all the uh, things around there. Honey Break, the famous Honey Break's now setting uh, 
off mm-hmm. of Catahoula Lake. Well, we was about as far off Catahoula Lake as uh, Honeybreak was. Good duck hunting, beautiful duck hunting country. And um, um, uh, me and one of the two Crow brothers, there were two brothers, we were best friends, and we duck hunted together a lot. Um, he died, and I was also best friends with his little brother, uh, Murray Crow. He's going to be an important part in this in this story. But uh, he had moved to Monroe. They'd got his dad died, his brother died. He got out of farming and moved to Monroe. And he had a he always liked to mess with cars and engines. And he'd build race cars. He'd build pulling tractors. He'd balance people's race engine for him. He's a tinkerer. Okay, had a degree in agri business. Now, okay, so. Uh, uh, don't don't start thinking too 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 back room back here. <laughs> you know the guy was well well educated from a good family, but he just liked to tinker. But he hated to duck hunt. He would not duck hunt. Really? Big game hunter, whitetail hunter mostly. You know, but even though we had this fabulous duck hunting place down in Catalina Parish, he would not go. We'd go down there, and he'd want to go duck deer hunting. And back then, it wasn't that good a deer deer hunting. It's great duck hunting. He just hated he hated duck hunting. Okay. So uh, uh, um, uh, it's 1999. I've still got that farm down there that that we had all those years. I'm duck hunting on it. It's December, middle of duck season. Uh, And he calls me up one day, and he wants me to help him. I'm in the engineering business. That's what I do for a living. You know, I own an engineering firm. We design roads and airports and reservoirs and things like that, dams. Real engineering. Things like that. You know, not duck decoys and uh, so uh, he called me up one time. He starts telling me about this uh, decoy that Jeff Simmons owns Simmons Sporting Goods in the town of Bastrop up the road. You've been there before. It's a Bass Pro size sporting goods store, oh, yeah. 7,500,000 square feet. You know, I mean, they got anything you want in there. You know, Jeff's a real good retailer, you know, if you, if you would, you know. So, and a duck hunter. And a duck hunter. He really is. And, uh, and a turkey hunter. Well, he, he had found out about this decoy. In fact, a guy came from California and hunted with him. And according to Jeff, had one of these things, and Jeff wouldn't let him put it out. They killed a limited ducks, and then Jeff let him put it out, and zoom, here come the ducks. <laughs> so the next morning, Jeff let him put him out to start with, and he killed a limited ducks in no time, you know. So, so he, 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 has, uh, he, he has told all these people about them. And you could get one out of California at that time. It was called a fatal deduction. You remember fatal deduction? Was it, was, it, was it the same duck body with spinning wings that we got now, or was it, was it the original field post? One? No, the field post, that, a guy named Mac Bride had that. He was in California, too. He's probably the first one that started it. But, but he never uh, uh, generated any commercial success okay. with that, you know. So these other, other guys uh, uh, came out with one. They had a duck body, okay, and they had spinning wings. Didn't have a very good mechanism to make them spin, but uh, it was a sensation when people used it. I do know that it got to Max Prayer Wings in Studgard, Arkansas, which is not very far up the road. And I don't, I thought that's where Jeff learned it, but Jeff told me he saw it from, you know, from the guy from California that came. But anyway, somehow he developed a list of people that wanted one of these. We're in the middle of duck season now, okay, so it's not before duck season. So he calls up Murray because he knows Murray can build anything. And he gives Murray one of these and says, can you build me some of these like now? I want to start selling them tomorrow. Right now. Yeah. And so Murray looked at that and built that. It shouldn't be no problem. Well, the way the guys in California had done it, uh, Robert Matthews was the guy that was doing that. He had taken a real small, fast-speed motor. Like runs a VCR or a remote control car, you know, turning, you know, probably uh, 2,500, 3,000 RPMs. In order to slow the wings down, he had to use a little pulley system. That's the best way of speeding something up and slowing it down. And his little, uh, his belt on the pulley system was an O-ring, okay? Mm. So, but it would, you know, he was probably turning, uh, reducing the speed from, I don't know, 2,500, 3,000 RPMs in the motor down to probably 500, somewhere in the vicinity of 500, what the wings need to turn. So, he gives this thing to Murray and says, can you build these? And Murray says, yes. Well, then Murray figured out he didn't know how to get the wing speed and the motor speed coordinated to produce the correct wing speed. So he calls me up. Because right off the get-go, everybody kind of figured out that there was a cadence to that strobe. It wasn't just movement. It was, it was a, a magic number. That's correct. And, and, and I don't know about your term right off, you know, so... Right off, they, they figured out if you punched the button, the darn ducks came to it. They figured that out. You know, so <laughs> I know they had that, that much down. 
Uh, and uh, so Murray, you know, I'm his good friend. I, I'm an engineer. He called me up and he starts telling me about this dump decoy, you know, and he wants to know if I can size these pulleys. Well, I just kept jumping over that part, saying, tell me again what kind of decoy is this, flashing white. He was using the term flashing white, okay? And he said, I don't know, Terry, I don't know. I just know Jeff's got some people who wants to buy some. He wants to sell them to them. He asked me if I could make them. I could make them, but I don't know how to size the motor. I said, okay. I tell you what, I do I'll come up there tomorrow at about lunchtime around noon somewhere. He's shot about 20 miles up the road from my engineering company. So I drive up there, and he and I start looking at this thing. Now, I still hadn't figured out how it works and why it works or anything. I'm just looking at the physical specimen he's got in his hand there, you know. So, But we did figure out one thing, or Murray figured it out. I don't know he or I who, how that exactly came about. But uh, they were doing it by the hard way, by the wrong way, you know, using a little high-speed motor. And uh, uh, and a little pulley system, you know. So Murray said, well, I think I know a solution to that. I, so, you know, I'm just helping my friends. I said, okay, I'm going back, you know, going back to engineering. So I go back to my shop. Next day he called me and said, come up here and look at this. So I drive up there. <clears throat> he has taken a uh, Caterpillar blower motor, double-shafted mm-hmm. Caterpillar blower motor, blowing two little fans up in your Caterpillar cab, you know. And, uh, and you know, the motor beeps somewhere around 10 or 15 times as big as those, those people were using on the previous ones. He built race cars. So, you know, what they wrapped race cars with back in those days was 040 aluminum. I don't know if they still use that or not. So he had four by eight sheets of 040 aluminum there. So he cut wings out of that 040 aluminum. They were already white on one side, you know, from the, when he got the car. And he had the painter put a sticker on the other side. He milled some, he milled some shafts out of aluminum stock. And he pop riveted the wing to the shelf, and he could fit the wing shelf right over the motor shelf, okay? So that's what we call the direct drive, which is what, you know, the only thing that's in existence today. So he solved a problem, and the, and the way that worked was that in DC, in DC motors, as opposed to AC, AC is what you got in your house, DC is a battery, uh, as opposed to uh, AC is that the motor turns proportional to the voltage that you put to it. So Caterpillars, all big diesel uh, machinery back in those days were mostly 24-volt. And so he put a 6-volt motor, which is commonly what we would have to use, uh, to a 24-volt motor, and he slowed the wings down proportionally for 24, slowed down about a 6. So he slowed down a 20, of about a 3,000 RPM motor to about 600 RPMs. Perfect. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now it's quiet, it's fast, it's smooth, you know, there's nothing to stop it because that little... Um, 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 pulley system they had, you know, if it got wet, that's right, or the wind blew, it wouldn't turn. Well, you couldn't stop this thing. It tried to turn underwater. You dropped them underwater. I dropped them underwater. You looked down in this steel trying to trying to turn underwater. You know, so so I said, okay, man, you got it. So he starts making these things. Well, he called me about another day. Says to come up there. Uh, so I drive up to his shop about midday. See what's going on. Are you it. using this for your own duck hunt at the time? I don't have one at that time. Okay, okay. you couldn't get one. I, well, I, I got one by the time they come off the assembly line. But right now, none of them has come off okay. the assembly line. So uh, he come up there. He said, look, I guess I need to give this thing some kind of name. And I said, yeah, I would think so. And so he said, what do you think I ought to name it? I said. I don't know. You know, Murray's a tinker. Tinkers don't like business. They like they like tinkering. They want somebody else to do the business for them. You know, I said, well, I don't know, Murray, but I do know that uh, uh, in the, the uh, trend in corporate America today to be short, easy to remember, rolls off the tongue, you know, nothing long. There's no General Motors anymore. You know, there's no Ford Motor Company. There's no any of that stuff anymore. It's Apple. It's Microsoft. It's real. You know, it's ABC. You know, it's IBM, things like that. He said, okay, I got that. I said, what do you think it ought to be? I said, you know, you remember uh, back when I, he and I grew up, my parents weren't farmers, but we had a little farm because my dad thought we ought to farm. So we had a but a hand labor farm, and I was the hand labor, you know, on that hand labor <laughs> farm, you know. But we had a little device uh, there. I don't know what it was. I really think it was somebody's first stab at being a garden plow or something. It was a motor and two wheels, kind of tractor wheel type, you know, and a pair of handles, and it had a clutch, you know, and you put the clutch in, it would go. And so we didn't have any plows or anything to go with it. We'd pull trailers and stuff like that with it. My dad called it a mojo. He said, get that mojo over here and hook that trailer. I said, yes, sir. Hook the mojo to the trailer. You know, I said, you remember that? He said, yeah, I do. I said, I said, nothing's easier to remember, shorter, smoother, roll off the tongue than mojo. He said, okay. So we called it a mojo mallard. And I went back to the engineering company, and I got my graphics PR lady there to make him some stickers. And they said, mojo mallard. And they put that on the on the motor itself. If you can find one of those things, don't let it get away from you. I can tell you right now, mm-hmm. do not let it get away from you. 
And uh, that was about a, <clears throat> you'd walk in a parts store, that motor had been about $80. But he found a reclaimer, if you know what a reclaimer is. You know, mm-hmm. When they changed models, they got all this leftover inventory, they just dump it, you know. So he found a reclaimer up in uh, Nebraska, and he bought those motors for about, seemed like $7 or $8 a piece, you know, about an $80 motor. And uh, hooked an old 12-volt lantern battery to it, you know, put it inside an old duck shell of some kind, and... Uh, and there you, there you go. There was the first uh, uh, Mojo Mallard. Yeah. And he, he got some of his other car racing buddies that had little shops all around Bastrop up there to help him build those. And however many they could build in a day, they would take the Jeff Summons Sporting Goods that night, at dark, in the putting time. And the people would come that night and pick them up. Didn't advertise. No, no. Yeah, no. Couldn't. Uh-uh. Couldn't turn out production quick enough. Uh-huh. There was a joke going around Monroe Bastrop area back then. They said, well, they, they throw their Benelli in the back of the truck, but that was a pretty high dollar then, you know. <laughs> so they locked their mojo up in the cab, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't Woo. know if that's true or not, but it did. But I got one of the very first ones that came off. I had a, a hen, you know. I wanted a drink, but I couldn't get a drink. I got a hen, you know. So I'm going to go hunting down our farm, got out of the parish, and I got my buddy. He's an engineer, too. He ran the line all refinery up Mel right at that time. So we go down, just me and him. It's weekday. Nobody else wants to go hunting with us. So we go down there, and I go out to my favorite blind. It's a pit blind, not in a levee, just out in the water. I go out there, and it's just kind of turning gray. It's not shooting time yet, but it's just kind of turning gray. So I'm just, I waited out, I waded out into the decoys, and I put this thing on the pole, and I kind of, I remember I looking around, make sure wasn't nobody looking at me because I was feeling kind of foolish to tell mm-hmm. you the truth. You know? It wasn't nobody looking, so I hit the switch, I turned it on, I start slowly wading back to the pit blind because everything's set up. I guess it's not time to shoot yet. And I hear, I turn around, I bet there's 40 or 50 mallards landing on top. I said, wait a minute, there might be something here, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know. So anyway, so we, he, Murray goes on through the season, however many he can make. He'd take them up to Jeff. Jeff would sell them that Did night. you ever figure out how many he made that first season, sell them I, out I the used back to alley know, door like it? I used to know, and it was a few hundred, something like that is all he could make. You know? And uh, and the Jeff sell so everyone. The on. man was probably a lot more than that. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, it was. It was for a fact. I'd say I could only get one. That's all I could get. So, uh, you know, season ended. No more demand. So Murray goes back to – he's really – he owns a few hundred – late model wreck cars and he's either robbing parts off of them or he's rebuilding them and selling them and you know stuff like that you know so i you know i'd go talk to him all the time anyway so i said you know murray you ought to go in that business and uh, i said there's a demand for that and now yeah care. and so next time i said you know murray y'all give us some thought now maybe you want to go in that business and uh <clears throat> he said no nah, i don't want to do that you know and so at one time i kept on at one time i said you know murray if you want to go in that business, I'll go in it with you. He said, I'll do that. And I said, I figured out right quick. He didn't want to mess with a business. He partner. wanted a tanker. He could build them. He didn't want to mess with them. So I said, okay, let's do that. And it's probably February now. Duck season ended in, what, January. I said, well, you know, Murray, I can <clears throat> I can set the business up. You know, I can get us the money. I can do all that stuff. That won't be a problem. You can build them. I don't be a problem. Somebody's got to sell them, you know. And so we, you know, we talked around about, you know, people we knew that might sell them. We even discussed Phil Robinson. He's our good friend. He was Murray's Sunday school teacher at the time. Golly. You know? But if anybody hated selling more than me and Murray's Phil, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he liked that about duck call. I'd make them, but I wouldn't. I, I'm not going to sell them. Back then, days, you had to talk to Miss Kay if you want to do any right. business with them. You know? So we finally decided on Jeff because Jeff knew all these people. You know, he's really well connected in the in the industry with a lot of big brands. So we got together and we said, okay, let's, let's do that. And uh, so we said, well, how many of these things do you think we ought to make? Well, I'm out of that picture. I don't know. You know, and Jeff says, uh, i tell you what, I'm going to Sports Inc. You know what Sports Inc. is, buying mm-hmm. group show in Phoenix. This weekend, he said, when I come back, I'll have you a pretty good idea about how many of them I think I can sell. Okay, that's cool. Murray, meanwhile, you'd be figuring out how many you can make. Because, you know, we're just making them by hand. Just I mean, one-man operation. Well, we had, you know, he had his buddies making them around there. But he had a shop. Now, we could set up a little better. But it wasn't going to be very good in the, in the very best. It wasn't going to be very good. So we get together the next week. I don't know if it was Monday or I don't know what day it was next week. Get together. And Jeff says, uh, all right, guys, I believe I can sell 7500 and said, Murray, how many do you think you could make? And I remember Murray had a piece of paper there, and he raised it up and said, 7,500. <laughs> What's the chances of that happening, you know? 
so you know Murray's a he, he's a get it done dude now he really is so he set up he got some people to help him he set up built some jigs and molds and things like that to kind of expedite the uh, uh, the building of them we printed those Mojo Mallard stickers again except this time we put a sequential number on them for for a, a serial number mm-hmm. okay and if you ever find one of them things you raise it up it's got a serial number on it and uh, so when the year's over with we had made uh, we didn't not seventy five hundred. We made fifteen thousand and sold every one of them. We didn't have any left over. So, so wait a minute. How many now. could you have sold? You know, I don't know. The only major distribution we had that year was Max Prairie Wings, and uh, and other than that, we just had a little local sporting goods store. There was no Amazon. We weren't selling on the internet. You know, this is two thousand. Oh mm-hmm. so, yeah. Uh, we didn't have any way to sell like that. So, <clears throat> I don't know how many we could have sold, but I don't think we could have sold. A lot more than that. I don't think we could have sold um, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, mm-hmm. or something. We just had no distribution, no way to get them out there. Right. You know? So, you know, back in those days, it took a long time to build up a brand because you didn't have, you know, uh, instant communication. You social know? media, yeah. no social media. You know, we couldn't get on TV by any way. Uh, you know, the, the outdoor channel was just kind of in the infancy stage then, and before the outdoor channel. You know, the only outdoor TV was, what, American Sportsman mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, you wasn't going to get on anything like that. Right. So you, you couldn't do then what you could do today. You just you just couldn't, you know. And that could be an advantage or a disadvantage, you know. Like once we get started, anybody's trying to catch up with us, you know, they have a, they have a hard time. So because they, you can't get distribution, you can't get your word out there. You know, you, right. run, you can run ads in um, print magazines back then, but – you know, delay on them several months. You know, you got to get that going for several months before you want it to air. So I, I can remember where I was and what day it was. I, I would say it was Super Bowl Sunday, nineteen ninety eight. Duck season was over. We were hunting Canada geese on Columbus Lake, and the geese hadn't showed up like they were supposed to. They eventually did, but. It was a long time. It was about noon when we about quit when they started to come in. And uh, Mr. McInvale, who I only hunted with that one day, who had a fine, fine black lab that made me want a good dog, uh, started describing, like you say, a white flash, a magic decoy. Uh, uh, and, 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 and to hear him describe it, as I think back, I'm almost imagining a hologram or something being beamed out just holographically on that, that would just attract every duck in the universe. And... Uh, and break, break, the following year, I'm in Washington State with a good friend of mine who was a tinkerer. And I I just described from what had been described to me. I hadn't seen one. You couldn't find one to look at. I didn't know about going to the back alley at midnight at, at, at Simmons to buy one out of a paper sack, you know. And uh, and this boy, and he, he went and bought a race car motor. And I don't mean like a little bitty race car. I mean like one of them ones that probably does 80 miles an hour down a go-kart and, 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 and built this thing and, uh, it worked. And I never forget the first time I used it. Uh, I was with two friends from Mississippi state, two professors, and we still, we got drawn to hunt, uh, up there at not to be refuge. And I brought it out with all the confidence in the world. Cause I've heard how magic this thing was. And they hooted and laughed and howled and pointed fingers and made fun. And, then the wing, the homemade wing, slung off into the water and sunk, never to be seen again. And then the ribbon really started, but it ended the minute the first flock of mallards flew over, and it looked like they just hit the end of a magic rope, and it just they just they just went from flying to dropping right on top of that one arm decoy. And but see, I'm gonna say it was at least a year after that or two before I could just go buy one. It didn't exist, you yeah. know. It, it was a it was a revolutionary decor product and i and i you know boy uh, since 1998 99 2000 uh you know i've heard everything about mojo decoys i mean uh, uh, up to and including uh possible uh that decoy contributed contributed to the jfk assassination i mean endless are the things that, that have been said uh about this decoy but at the end of the day you know since since primitive man invented a mud and grass decoy, the whole purpose has been to bring birds in, and I've never seen a decoy universally. I've, I've hunted over them worldwide, uh, uh, homemade ones, uh, guys in, in, in third world parts of the world that took an old tape recorder two years ago and, and, and made one because they couldn't find one. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and, it, and it absolutely transformed uh, people's ability to hunt ducks. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's, it's, Terry, uh, where do you think it just blow, you know, what what, I, what intrigues me about that decoy is that somebody had to envision that flash and that contrast to mimic a duck's wings to where a duck would come in. Where do you think that originated? Where, where do you think somebody came up with the idea of this anyway? I've been told, I don't know this, I've just been told from some guys in California that, uh, that the thought originated in California. Now, we know the decoy originated in California. But they say the thought originated there because they said, you know, they grow all those fruits and vegetables and things like that. And they said they had a bunch of big fans out in a strawberry field, drying the strawberries, drying the dew off the strawberries so they could pick them. started picking them earlier. And uh, and they noticed those ducks, you know, they do have a resident flock of mallards in, uh, in the valley of California there. They noticed those ducks working those fans. And, um, um, however, the fan is not alternating white and dark and white and dark, you know, so, so that doesn't tie together a hundred percent, but it could have got them started on the, on the thought process. And, um, I know when we, we started making them, uh, a guy from Canada, uh, caught my attention one time. He sent this little video in. He said, let me tell you why your decoy worked. Well, we thought we knew, but I'd never seen it visually like this, you know, uh, graphically be maybe a better term than that, but he had taken some video of ducks landing. I can't remember if it was a dry field of water. I kind of think it was a dry field. He, he was in Canada uh, as it was getting dark, and it's much easier to see it in low light. Okay, you can put a filter on your camera and make it even darker, and you can see it even better. But uh, you just see these flashes of white, little momentary flashes of white, a little strobe effect, little strobe effect. Uh, um, and so, and it kind of uh, passes through the flock of them because they only do it for a couple of beats. And then the next one over here do it and doesn't do it and doesn't do it and doesn't do it until it's just little flashes throughout the flock of ducks. Uh, uh, I liken it to to, to uh, uh, fireflies, you know, uh, uh, lightning bugs, you know, because you when the lightning bugs are real thick, you just see light for just a second or two, you know, in all different locations. And I think. Uh, I think that's what I liken it to. So, you know, it's really not, you know, real clear where the concept came from. We do know this about that now that we know it. You know, that's that's how ducks find other ducks. That's how doves find other doves. You know, that's how pigeons find other pigeons. Not all birds, but those birds that do give off that flash, um, uh, geese don't do it because they don't beat their wings fast enough, you know, so... Uh, we know that's how birds find these, find birds of their like kind. And so that's what caused the attraction of it to begin with. I just don't know who came up with the idea of turning a blade with white on one side, dark on the other one, and generating that flash. Well, it's your revolutionized duck hunting. You know, and, and I would say, uh, and I'm not real certain about the years, but I do remember the first year that they were more widely available than they were uh, back in the early, when it was kind of a top secret thing, I, I was working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I was flying midwinter waterfowl counts up there in North Delta, Mississippi, and about five, six, five hundred to a thousand feet is where we'd fly. You know, get about fifteen hundred going property to property. Get down to about five hundred when we're actually circling and counting birds. And and I remember on a clear day, uh, something catching my peripheral vision, and, and it, it had to have been two miles away. And, and it was it was a mojo. First time I ever saw one from the air. And I'd get back looking at the ground, doing my count, and, and, and every time it'd catch my eye, I couldn't I couldn't not look. I, I couldn't not look because it just it it attracted me. And, and what have y'all ever done, or what what are your thoughts on how far a duck can see that, and we'll respond to that. Well, we we've thought about that a lot. We worked on it some. Hard to get an absolute answer to that, but. Uh, about the first or second year we were really in the business, we had a crop duster. I live in the Mississippi Delta, you know, like you, crop dusters everywhere, you know. Had a crop duster call us and say, I could see one of those things from eight miles away. Eight miles. Uh-huh. Now he, he knew where the mojo was, and he knew where he was. You know, they just fly by, you know, by the seat of their pants like that. Now, that doesn't mean a duck can see it from eight miles, because a human can. But everything that I've ever studied on it indicates that they can see it for for miles 
And if you start thinking about a duck's vision, uh, you get out, go wading in a decoy is what happens. Ducks fly up. They'll fly within 100 yards of you before they figure out what you are. Oh, they see at a certain distance is movement. They see movement, okay? And so they fly up there. You know, I've killed them. I know you've killed them, too. Sometimes you'll just bend over where you don't look like a human. They'll fly pretty pretty close to you like that. So that tells me without question they saw some movement. they seen the ripples in the water, you know, all that other stuff. They flew over there to check it out. They had to get within 100 yards before they figure out what you were, big as a human is, okay? I've read, and this is you know, pretty consistent, that they say ducks can see uh, motion about three and a half times better than they can see static objects, okay? I know that they can see the strobe off of this uh, spinning wing decoy <clears throat> for miles, especially on a clear day. And it's going to vary, you know, if it's a low, a lot of moisture in the air, you know, they're not going to see it as, as high to start with. They fly very high then in the clouds. Um, so, so, so that's going to be a different day. But a clear day, I know they can see it for miles. They can't see uh, just movement that far off. They can't see it that far off. And so that caused us to break, uh, as we deal with motion here at Mojo, it caused us to break that down into two distinct separate categories that really don't have much to do with one another. One of them is simple motion. That's things moving, whatever they might be. And it can be good or bad. You move around the blind, they because see it. Because ducks really move. Ducks don't just sit still they in don't. the water. No, unless they just sleeping. They just, they they doing a lot of moving, you know. And the other half of that is what we call the strobe off of a spinning wing decoy. And, uh, and you're not ever going to uh, successfully, day in and day out, use a spinning wing decoy unless people start thinking about things like this, because it makes a lot of difference in how, when, how many, you know, where you put them and all kind of things like that. But you can attract ducks. This, I believe this with all my heart and soul. You can attract ducks with a spinning wing decoy that would never see your spread otherwise. There's no movement that you can put in that spread. Well, it wouldn't come look at it. Now, oh, yeah. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Like, you know, uh, I've heard a comment for many, many, many years, many years, maybe since the first year it was available, that, that well, the ducks get educated and they aren't coming in, they aren't finishing, you know, they're, they're stale, they're this. And what I've always felt like, you know, I'm out there hunting, I've got a mojo, and the ducks stall 150, 200 yards out of range and they work. I've always wondered myself, maybe that duck had no intention whatsoever of coming nowhere near where I'm standing had he not seen that bird. And to me, it's just a law of probability. The more birds I can attract, it just give me a high look, the more birds naturally might finish and get within gun range. That's how I've looked at it. Yeah. You think about this. If you if you were flying, if you were a human in an airplane flying, you did a lot of that, or you was a duck up there and you was flying over the Delta, Mississippi River Delta, where we at, or these other areas of the country where there's lots of water, uh, you're going to see a lot of water motion, you know, of all different kinds of things, you know, from other animals in the water to... You know, machines in the water to, I don't know what all, pumps running, all kind of different things, you know. So they can't just go check out every motion that they see. Something's got to tell them that it's in their best interest to go there or it's of interest to them to go there. So, you know, I, I firmly believe that concept. I believe that you will always kill more ducks with a spinning wing decoy if you use it properly, then you will without it, always. We never go, we, we get that question often, say, do y'all ever hunt without one? Say, no, we never hunt without one unless we hunt in some place where they aren't legal. And uh, But we we do vary considerably how we would use it, you know, to mitigate some oh, of those yeah. problems you, you're talking about there. You and I have, uh, we've hunted one everywhere in the world that we've hunted together, and, and we've gone out and moved it and done it, moved to the left, moved it out of sight, and moved it here, moved it there until it, Till it's what it fits the ducks' narrative of why they're going to come in or how they're going to finish it. Yeah, day. and how many do you use? That's a that's a question we get asked often. <clears throat> I don't have the answer to that. I mean, I can't tell you on what day to use how many. I can tell you this: on some days, if you put out eight, you'll kill a lot of ducks. You put out one, you won't kill any. I've seen that time and time again, and people have told me about it time and time again. And some days you put out eight, <clears throat> you ain't going to kill any. You know, it's just right. too much flash for them. And I know that the the biggest difference is. Clear bluebird versus cloudy low ceiling. You know that that's two different, two totally different types of uh, days. You got to be careful with that. But you know, after that, you can kind of figure out on your own. You know, somebody don't have to tell you what to do. Now, if somebody knows 
<clears throat> and they can tell you to give you a jump start on things, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but there's, there's a lot of variables. Decoying ducks is not easy unless the ducks want it to be easy. Right. Some days, it's going to come around and land in your decoys, you know, make you think you're a duck hunter, you know, so make you think you're a duck caller. Some days, they ain't going to let you kill them. Talking about motion, I can remember back in the days I was flying those counts. Uh, you see a spread, you see you see some bird, you see something across the field or wherever, you know, you're looking. When, when you know, when you're out there walking in a duck hole, it looks muddy. That water ain't muddy in a bean field or a rice field. It's clear as a bell, and you you can you can see the bottom from five hundred feet. But where there where there's decoys, it's clear as a bell. You can see the strings and anchors on some of them sometimes on a clear day. But where there's ducks, where there's live ducks, when those are ducks, it's muddy mm. because they're always paddling, they're always swimming, they're always dabbling, they're always flapping, they're always disturbing that water, and, and it's like a big old mud hole around around where those birds are sitting. Because of that motion you're talking about, and and you know it's not just the, not just the flapping wings, but you know, uh, sit there and just, you sit across a field on the ground level and just watch a raft of birds. Something's always flapping. Something's always flashing. Well, they can make. Uh, I know you've seen this as much many places you've been in the world, but if you catch them when they're doing the this particular thing it's worse than a bunch of hogs out in the water you know it's noise and it's water i've seen them when they i think they're washing their feathers is what they're doing when they're sticking their wings down the water and throwing that water up in the air you've seen that too you know mm-hmm. and you can hear them from you can hear them from a half a mile off you know and, it, and it's just a terrible commotion there so you know that leads me to one of my sayings is it, it, it's not motion that ever scares a dove it's the wrong kind of motion. Motion itself is not scared them. They generate tons of motion at on the wrong own. time, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. I yeah. mean, and like you know, if if you are a purist and you are hunting with decoys, because there are times and places for whatever reason I'm hunting with just static decoys. You know how those birds are placed and where those birds are relative to where that bird's going to land or how you're going to work into that hole is all very important. So, so by naturally by taking a mojo where I put it and relative to how they're going to work or how their behavior is with regards. You know, I've always said my favorite duck truly is a dumb duck. And by the time we get, we get, we get Delta hand down here in the deep South anymore, they, they anything but dumb, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they're smart. And, uh, and I've always wondered, Terry, you know, people, people that say, well, they're stale or them things don't work. Or they're not as effective. I, I wonder if it's, I personally don't believe it's, it's that, that, environmental cue that flash that strobe that they see i think it might be the behavior of hunters associated with it maybe they're not hidden i mean how many times might a duck see those, those flash or those strobes or that pattern that they're also associated with somebody moon pine them somebody moving at the, at the wrong time or calling too loud i mean there's a lot of different reasons other than just a single decoy or two out there you know that's just how i look at it i, I think you're absolutely right you know who, who's using a mojo might be a few bird watchers or somebody like that but other than that it's hunters trying to kill ducks so if you're a duck you know you see one of those things if you could distinguish it from real ducks okay if you could distinguish it from real ducks you fly over there there's hunters they scare you they shoot at you they kill you they kill your mother you know whatever happens in that you know certainly if ducks couldn't catch on to that in 20 years, we wouldn't have ducks that all be dead today. You know, uh, our our favorite outfitter down in Argentina, Diego, told me one time he really doesn't use the mojos to attract ducks. He's got the ducks coming in. He uses them to draw the ducks' attention to it instead of to his hunters that oftentimes aren't concealed at all, just, just refuse to hunker down or wear camo or do something. You know, he says... It's a nice, he said, it's almost like my blind. He said, because the duck, all they see is it. They don't see this hunter over here, you know, not even pretending he's duck hunting. You know, when we first came out with the mojos, um, I, I determined that they were doing several different things for you. Number one, they were causing ducks to come look at your spread that wasn't going to come look at your spread after that. So mm-hmm. they've automatically increased the number of ducks coming around there. And number three is that they take the focus off of the hunters. So not only did you kill more because they attracted more, you killed more because they made it easier for you to decoy them. Right. Whether or not they were landing on, the, on it or not, it did grab their focus. You could watch them coming in. If you watched them real, real carefully coming in, you could see them looking right at it. And so it would allow you to get away with a little more movement, you know, face showing, things like that. 
one of the one of one of the, one of the sentiments I've heard shared in the last twenty years, I guess, a long time since Mojo really started coming out. One of the sentiments I've heard shared it was the animosity uh, stemming from, let's just say, Arkansas. I'm not picking on them, but but coming from them, say a, a, a public timber hunter. Here's a guy that cut his teeth on a duck call. Who daddy might have been a world champion. They 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 hunt hard. They scout. They call. They do this thing, and then walks a guy that's been hunting for three months, sticks out a mojo, and all things equal, he starts pulling ducks off up. Mm. And I get where you're coming from. You know, boy, don't you like it when you earn something? That I know in a, in a fair fight, man, I can I can outcall you. I can outposition myself. But at the same time, I just keep harping on this: how important it is to get people into hunting in general. And and so all of a sudden comes along a decoy that anybody can use. A seven-year-old can go out now and have a chance at killing ducks, which at the end of the day, if he don't kill ducks, he ain't going to hunt. And that, that's, that's where I've always fell back. You know, personally, I use Mojo, or I'm going to start using them, you know, from the get-go, from day one. Or, or, let me put it this way. From the minute the hunt starts, Mojo's going. Now, I may have to go move them or do something differently, but I use Mojo because I want to kill ducks. That's just me personally. You know, down there where you and I live, Ramsey, if you got money and you're willing to spend it, you can kill ducks. Yeah. You can go buy the best, you can go rent, lease, buy the best duck hole around here, you know, an ancestral duck hole, and you're going to have ducks if you if you treat it right. And so one of the main advantages we always thought in the beginning was, you know, I live in a college town. There's a public refuge right outside town. Gets a lot of ducks flooded mallards, you know. That's the only place them kids got, they ain't got money. The only place they got to go. And and following up on what you said there, it allowed them to go out there and go hunting and kill ducks. And kill ducks. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, I don't care whether you're you're all hardcore hunting with a black powder gun and uh, leather waders or however Davy Crockett hunted ducks or not. I mean, at the end of the day, the end result's a dead duck, and that's the whole point. You know, I went through this same thing with uh, crossbows and drawlocks. You know what a drawlock is on a bow? Uh, uh, when I was on the Wildlife and Fisheries Commission, uh, uh, we had a group of uh, a very active group of archers around Baton Rouge, which is our state capital. That's where we had our Wildlife and Fisheries Commission meeting. Both they'd be the only ones that come because they live right there in town where they have it anyway. And they were adamantly against us allowing drawlocks or crossbows or anything like that, you know. And so I would always ask them, says why? I said, well, we like traditional. And uh, I kind of boned up on my archery terminology. I'm going to screw this up, but you'll get the point. Well, I said, let me see if it's got this straight. you got a double compound, you know, bow with a whisker biscuit red in a, in a mechanical <laughs> product. And you tell me you hunting traditional, you know. Right. <laughs> you better get you a piece of stone and a, and a wooden handle to put it in if you're going to hunt. And one day this guy, this old guy showed up at the commission meeting, and he started telling us about how all his older buddies was not being able to hunt like they used to because I can't get up on a platform and draw a bow back anymore. I can't stand up on a platform and draw it back. And all I'm asking you to do is to approve the draw lock so I can cock my bow before I get up there. Mm-hmm. And then I can hunt again. You know, and he had pretty much had tears rolling down his eyes before he got through with that. And so I said, there's a crack in the door right there, guys. And so we went from there. It took several years. We got draw lock approved. Then we got crossbows approved. Because my theory is, let them go hunting. We got plenty of deer. Now we supposed to be talking about ducks, but we got plenty of deer. Sure, we can raise deer just turning like we raise cows. You know, let everybody go hunting as long as it's moral and ethical, and we can make the rules. Now we can make it legal. That's not a problem at all. Uh, let them hunt. We need more hunters. The population. Uh, uh, the let's see. Back then, uh, we were down to a little under five percent of the population of the United States buying a hunting license. Mm-hmm. That's, that's scary. Yeah. We become insignificant at some point. I worry. That, that, that's exactly the word I was thinking is political relevance. You know, it, it, at some point in time, we need more hunters. I've already heard reports of uh, DNRs and, and state agencies, and, and I'm sure federal agencies, if they even worry about it, you know, uh, where's the funding going to come from? Because we hunters are footing the bill. You know, and, 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 you know, a lot of these state agencies are, are getting their operational and management revenues from hunter-derived proceeds. We, we need more hunters. You know, a, a politician don't say anything but money. And, votes. And, 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 votes. Huh? Votes. Votes. Well, votes and money. Yeah. But, uh, well, you know, it's like I'm, I'm thinking. I always thought about this. You told me one time about the most unfair tax on God's earth. We talked about the death tax. Mm-hmm. And it, it affects so few people, 1%. 
You know, you work your whole life, you save money, put your kids through college, you invest, you do everything. When you die, they take it half. Mm-hmm. All that untaxed, all that after-tax money, they're going to take half. But it affects so few Americans that no politician is willing to spend any time on it because yeah. it, it ain't relevant to them. And mm-hmm. I see the same thing could happen. I've been to Australia. I've been to Netherlands, and I've seen what happens when hunting becomes politically irrelevant. It, hunting it is no longer and I, I think it could happen in America. Oh, it's headed that direction. I don't know how far it'll go, but it's headed in that direction. It seems like it. Yeah. Speaking of this, Terry, uh, changing the subject off of, of decoy, I know you've been hunting for a long, long time. Um, I remember you, us talking you about it in Mexico the, you one time. when I'm old? Or you? Uh, no, I'm going to say you're old. You're <laughs> well, really not too much older than me. <laughs> but, but uh, golly, I think we were, we were hunting Mexican mallards in... And uh, Sonora one time and got to talking about it. And I think you'd been duck hunting since I was 17 years old or something. And you said, oh, that can't possibly be. And you did the math and it was pretty close. What, what have you seen other than uh, – what, what have you seen change? What are like when you think back as hunting what it was when you were young or, or years ago versus now, what, do you, what are some of the changes you see happening or, or some of the, 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 the good and the bad changes that have happened? Well – the, the, the biggest thing you see, I think, is uh, uh, outside of media. Now, you know, there's a lot of media now, so you can, you can learn. There's the Internet. You can research. You can go find anything you want. Now, that would probably be the biggest single uh, change since in the early beginnings. But jumping over that just to more ordinary things than, than that, uh, it's the equipment. You know, hunting has become an a, a equipment-intensive sport. I don't know if that's good or not. I don't know if that's a good system. But, um, uh, you know, we're in that business. We're doing that. But that don't necessarily make it a good system. And so it allows, it and other things allows people to hunt most anywhere they want to hunt. You know, when you and I were little, there were still areas people couldn't get to. Right. You know, there'd be mallards over there, you know, by the thousands in some place. There was no easy access. A few people would strap something on their back and go hiking through the water three or four or five miles to get back there and shoot them. But the, but the average person wasn't going to do that. They weren't going to go to that much trouble. And, uh, but, now, but now, you know, the land gets to be uh, leased. Even today, it gets to be owned. You know, you own some, I own some. It gets to be owned just for recreational purposes. And by recreation, I'm mostly talking about hunting. Uh, uh, and that's made a huge difference. But we don't have these big, gigantic areas anymore where where people can't get to. In the place of them, we have federal refuges, state refuges, you know, and the hunters typically tend to be uh, against those if they, if they don't allow hunting. You know, they just say, well, you know, they shouldn't do that. But uh, we had refuges back when you and I started. They just wasn't called refuges. They were just areas you couldn't get to. That's right. You know, and it's, and it's good for the wildlife to have some place. If, if a duck... Every time they got ready to sit down and bring a water, somebody either scares them or shoots at them, they're going to leave that part of the country, and they're going to go to some other part of the country. So, you know, you just can't have it to where, you know, you can have a place and you just go out there every time, shoot all the ducks you want to shoot. That, that just don't work. That system won't work. And it doesn't exist anywhere in the world. You and I have seen that. I mean, some of the best hunts we've been on don't get a lot of hunting pressure or there's no, there's no local hunting pressure or, uh, or, or the, the, the guide outfitter ops not to hunt it but every 10 days so so the ducks get plenty of rest so they stay into the areas and i've seen that everywhere yeah some of the places we go like canada <clears throat> some places in alaska mexico argentina you know places like that it's kind of like it was back when you and i grew up grew That's up right. you know there's a lot of a lot of game not very many hunters you know because most of those people the locals don't hunt so the only hunters there are people that come from either europe or the united states or somewhere like that that nobody else is hunting them and so the hunting pressure's very, very low, and, of course, that's why you and I go there. <laughs> that's exactly why we go there, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Terry, is there any, is there any, is there, are there any challenges or any, like when you just sit back and think about the future of hunting, um, what would you recommend to a young person that, uh, or, or, or younger people that's got, a, you know, a, a long future ahead of them, in hunting, what what advice or what what concerns or anything that concerns you about the future of hunting or conservation in America? Some just thoughts you got along that line. Well, you know, Ramsey, if you think about it, you know, hunting is not an easy sport. You know, it's not a comfortable sport. 
You know, it's, it's get up way before daylight, you know, go out in the rain, the snow, you know, whatever, you know, might have the cold, the freezing. Um, and the alter- alternatives that are available to these children today, you know, is stay home, you know, play electronic games, watch TV, you know, things like that. So you can see why it's hard to get a child started hunting unless he just grew up in a hunting family. You have a better chance at that, you know. I have two sons. Both of them hunted in high school. My older son, once he made it to college, you know, it turned into beer and girls, and he didn't care too much about us. But we had that great hunting club down in uh, hunting camp and farm down in Catahoula Parish, and all his buddies wanted to go, so he'd have to drag them. He'd have to bring them down there every year, but he didn't care anything about hunting. And my other little boy, that's all he ever wanted to do was hunting fish, you know. So, you know, there's something in there, but you touched on the, the trick to it while ago, and that's success, early success. And so if we want to get people into hunting some way or other, you got to – somehow foster some early access for them, whatever, whatever that is, you know. And you can see, you know, you, 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 it happened to you and we, you and I have observed in our life, you know. There is a moment, it may not be a second-type moment, there is a moment, there's a short period of time when hunting either grabs you or it don't, mm-hmm. you know. And once it grabs you, you got to do it. I mean, it's in your genes from, you know, from a million years ago, from, a, you know, yeah. 200 years ago, you know. Instinct. But, but, but yes, instinct. But, you know, living, living in these cities today, as most youth are, you know, they're not exposed to it. So even though it's in there, they don't feel it because they hadn't seen it, you know. So, you know, that's what we got to do. If we want to preserve hunting, we've got to get the youth in, involved in it. One of the things I've noticed that the industry did uh, was when they got woman, women involved in hunting. Right. When I was on the commission, uh, the, 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 the idea then was to get kids involved in hunting. And so we was trying to get these kids to go. But, you know, if in, 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 in old-time families, in country families, rural families, dad hunted, mom stayed home and cooked, you know, and cleaned the house, raised babies and things like that. So uh, if mom wasn't hunting, then the kid had a choice, do I want to go out there in the freezing rain? Well, Dad, or do I want to stay home in the warm house with Mom? Make you know, cupcakes for Mom. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly right. But when they left the concept, not left it, but when they started focusing on the concept of getting women involved in hunting, then then our effort ratcheted up a good bit. Then you know, because if 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 Dad's gonna go hunting this weekend, Mom's gonna go with him. That's right. Kids gonna go with him too. You know. That's even if they don't exactly do anything but right. stay around the camp, you know, even if they don't get out there. But if you get them outdoors, there's something about being outdoors. There's something about being outdoors when the storm's coming, you know. Mm-hmm. You can see the lightning or you can see the wind or, you know, all those things, you know. It's, it, it's, as you say, it's ingrained in us, but something has to bring it out. Thank you, Terry. Ramsey Russell, GetDucks.com. Check us out on Instagram, at Ramsey Russell, GetDucks. Thank you, all